You've been hearing how some big brands are winning through simplicity. But don't get intimidated. You can do this too, no matter the size of your team or your budget. Want to learn the six behaviors you can instill to create simple experiences for your customers and your team members? Download a free copy of my simple playbook today. It'll help you immediately turn your customer experience around and create an Amazon experience without having an Amazon budget. Grab your copy of my simple playbook at mattliles.com slash simple playbook. Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now, here's your host, Matt Lyles. If you've been following me for a while, then you likely know that I preach innovating to stay ahead as one of the key behaviors that create simple experiences. But there's a challenge with innovation. People tend to make innovation much harder than it has to be. Most people think innovation is confusing, complicated, intimidating, complex. People think you need a special degree or training to do innovation right. People think it's something that only elite, natural-born geniuses are capable of. And because of these assumptions, sadly, most people think that they're not innovative. The truth is, consistently coming up with great, innovative, creative ideas isn't a talent you're born with or a skill that takes years to learn. Anyone can do it. But it does help to have a process to understand how to be innovative. And that's why I'm glad to talk with Carla Johnson this week. Carla is one of the top marketing keynote speakers, and she's a best-selling author of multiple books with her latest book coming out this summer, Rethink Innovation, how the world's most prolific innovators come up with great ideas that deliver extraordinary outcomes. In Rethink Innovation, Carla teaches how to make innovation everyone's business. In fact, she's got a goal to teach 1 million people how to become innovative thinkers by 2025. And today, you get to be one of those people. So here it is, my interview with Carla Johnson. Hi, Carla. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Matt. Thank you so much for inviting me today. Well, thanks for being here. And of course, we're here because you have spent a multi-year process (laughs) researching and working on your latest book, Rethink Innovation. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes, I feel like the the launch is its own anniversary celebration in itself. It's it's a bit a long journey, but one that was well worth being patient. I will say that. Well worth being patient. Understood. And if you can treat your book launch as a celebration, because I know that there's a lot of work that goes just into the launching of the book. So if you're able to treat it as a celebration, then congrats for that too. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. You're not kidding. There's, there's all the, the blood, sweat and tears that goes into writing the book itself. And then it's its own other completely different category in, into launching it. That's for sure. It is, but I'm excited to see it come out, but tell me what drove you to actually going through this process of researching innovation and writing the book? 
It was interesting in um, five years ago, five years ago this month, actually, um, Robert Rose and I released a book together called Experiences, the Seventh Era of Marketing. Right. And one of the things that I noticed seemed to consistently come up in conversations about that book is that they loved the whole idea of creating the story-driven experience and understanding the content creation management framework that we present in that book. But one of the things that still seemed to be a stickler for people was how can I actually come up with an idea that is different, unique, um, doesn't feel like a copycat of another brand, or, you know, doesn't feel like a rehash of something that we've already done 10 times. You know, how do I come up with an idea that's new and fresh to put through that, that system? And it was really fascinating. The more I paid attention to this, the number of people who didn't identify as either being creative thinkers or innovators in anything that they did. And, and especially, you know, for the time five years ago, content marketing, I think content marketing itself as an approach to marketing, especially as you elevate it to an approach to business is incredibly innovative. And so I, I wanted to look at this disconnect between what it is people believe about innovation and ideas and how they come up with them, their role in them, how we execute them. And the people who consistently, you know, and consistently over like decades produce this kind of amazing work that we all hold up as, you know, as, as the icons of creativity and innovation and really understand is what these iconic innovators do. Is it something that can be broken down and taught so that somebody else can do it and then scale it in another environment. So that was really the big question that I sought to answer. And it was it was really fascinating in these last five years to be able to dig in and, and deconstruct these processes and find these commonalities. And for the most part, the people who are very, I, I think um, that we look at as, as the natural innovators or creative thinkers, it is something that may be a little more innate in them that, that comes to them a little bit more naturally, but it's not something at all that the rest of us can't learn. And that was my hope by, by talking about how we need to rethink innovation is, is to demystify it a bit and kind of democratize innovation so that everybody can and will identify at least a part of themselves as an innovator, as an innovative thinker, you know, as the creative person in the world, in the, in the room when they have these conversations. I like how you use the term demystify, because I think most people, when they think of the term innovation, I think the general populace has a consistent definition of innovation in mind. And usually it's, it's, you know, those people that are innovative and like those people that are locked away in their, in their own little room, creating these big uh, technological creations. But how would you define innovation? You know, for, for me, and because I did also study a lot of definitions of innovation and it was interesting. I, I asked the question, on LinkedIn to people, how do you define innovation? And you know, the the responses were as wildly diverse as the people and places you know that they came from. I just assumed everyone would just say Tesla. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's an example, but I think if you said, what is it about Tesla that that makes you think that they're innovative? A lot of people can't define it, and you can't identify as something or practice something 
that you can't define. And I think that's part of the mystery. And and to be honest, I think a lot of people who are innovators kind of like to have this air of mystery about what they do. And they do want to be this group that has the special room and the special desks and the special dress code and the special, you know, whatever else, you know, especially as we were in physical offices that made it, made them immediately identifiable as the innovation group or, you know, or the design thinkers or the, you know, or as that group and that's their responsibility. But there's a big danger with that. And we've actually seen this a fair amount in this last year with um, the pandemic and how it affects businesses is that when you identify just a small group of people to be responsible with something that is so important to the future and thriving of an organization like innovation, you create an us and them dynamic in the culture. One, it's people saying, I'm not smart enough because that's what they do and they have special degrees or special experience or special, special somethings that everybody else doesn't have. Or they, the rest of the employee population says, that's not my job. You know, my job is something else. They're the people who innovate. And so you see this culturally in an organization where they may have ideas for, you know, products or services or something that are incredibly innovative, but it's just as painful as can be to get those out the door and across the line if they're ever able to actually do that. And that's because only 10% of innovation lies within the R&D and product and services development group. It's the other 90% of how you do business that actually proves whether or not you're an innovative organization, whether you have a culture of, of innovation. And when we think about that in innovation that way, it's an interesting uh, cue to rethink our definition of what innovation is in that way. I define it as consistently, and that's a really important word, coming up with new, great, and reliable ideas. And I have specific definitions you know, for each of those words. I mean, consistency is the ability to be prolific over a long period of time. And, and we see that for with people like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and some of these icons that we think of as innovators. But there's a lot of day-to-day people who are like this as, as well. And when we break down this, this definition of new, great, and reliable ideas, The idea of a new idea doesn't mean it has to be something that has never, ever been done before, ever. It can take something that worked well in another situation, in another industry, and you understand how to transplant that into your world. So, for instance, McDonald's approach to their drive-through is modeled after a Formula One pit stop. We look at the, the iDrive in BMWs as modeled after a video game. So that's an example of pulling something in that's new to your industry, to your you know, product or service that is very different and new for what you're doing, but doesn't necessarily mean that it's never been done before in some kind of context. Now, the second definition of a great idea, I'll admit it's it's more subjective, but it's the kind of thing that makes an idea uh, it gives it that that wow factor, and it's what advertising great David Ogilvy describes as the as the kind that makes you jealous that you didn't think of that idea. You know, oh, it yeah. makes the the hair stand up in your arm, and you're like, "Oh man, that's so awesome! I wish I would have thought of that." And then that third characteristic is that it has to be a, re- a reliable idea, and a re- reliable idea is one that you actually can execute. And it's one that ultimately affects the bottom line. Now, there's a lot of people that say 
the easy part of innovation is coming up with the ideas, the hard parts, the execution. And I, I challenge that because I think many times the reason some ideas are so hard to execute is because they aren't great ideas to start with. So when you start to be more discriminating about what you define as an innovative idea, then you can start to see that it does take discipline, rigor, and structure to come up with the ideas almost to the degree that it does to execute on those ideas. If you're looking at being one of these prolific innovators and, and being able to identify a specific objective that you're needing to address with these ideas. And I think that's another challenge that we have in a and something that gives the idea people a bad name is that, oh, you know, all they have to do is throw out ideas, you know, that's no big deal. Well, when you do it right, you actually identify a problem you're solving. You are able to do this on a consistent basis. You have an entire portfolio or, you know, repertoire of ideas. It's not as simple as traditional innovation people make it sound. There is a fair amount of, of rigor and discipline that goes into that, but it's not something that isn't learnable, that isn't something that you can practice and, you know, ultimately learn and do whether you're an individual, whether you're a team, or, you know, you're looking to scale this as an entire approach to innovation as a culture inside an organization. When we think of it that way, then, then how can teams learn how to be innovators? The first thing they need to understand is what are the problems that they're trying to solve? And that's one of the, the chapters in my book is how to specifically set an objective that's going to solve a specific problem. Because many times the ideas that we have are, are, are fuzzy themselves because being able to clearly identify and articulate the problem we're trying to solve is also fuzzy. You know, but if you have clear specifics about what you're needing to accomplish, your likelihood of having clear, specific ideas on how to solve that are much higher. And so that's one thing is, is to come together and agree as a team. And I see this when I do workshops in this way, is that people come together and we start to talk about, okay, you know, what, what's the true problem that we have here? And you have, especially as you bring together people from different teams, it could be marketing and IT and finance or HR, you know, whatever the dynamics may be. Everybody has their own specific lens on what the problem is. And unless you come together and are very specific, and, and this is different than like writing a creative brief, because you're looking at the problem you're solving and you also start to identify, okay, what are some of the constraints that ultimately we have to execute against? You know, it could be budget, it could be time, it could be cultural things, it could be customer expectations or, or something like that. That's when you get really, really crystal clear. And I think as a team going through the exercise of articulating the objective of the problem that you're trying to solve is a huge, huge first step that's easy to skip over because we're like, oh, everybody knows what we're trying to solve. But everybody comes into the story of this situation in a different chapter from, you know, some people have live it every single day. Some people drop in and out and they don't really know what's going on. And so that's why it, it does make it hard to come up with the great ideas that are ultimately executable because what you're trying to accomplish isn't clear. And I think that gives a lot of clarity around, you know, like why you're doing this. And I think when teams really get together and really focus and fully define the problem they're trying to solve, 
along with that comes why they're trying to solve it. And mm-hmm. that helps really, really help uh, solidify their thinking. Exactly. Exactly. And to be able to articulate, you know, are you trying to solve this problem so you can decrease customer churn? So you can increase customer conversions? Are you looking to bring more leads in? Are you looking to improve customer experience scores? Getting real specific on what that outcome is that you expect and numbers against it. I think that's also why the idea people have a bad rep because the you know traditional very left brain R and D people and, and innovators are like you just kind of make stuff up as you go along like it's not really a thing you do you know but but there is even in a tr- you know traditional creative process it's it's there's um a lot of of rigor that goes in to doing it correctly and when you do this as a team one thing that you understand then if you're involved in it from the idea generation through execution process is that you start to understand how to connect the dots between things that are going on in other industries, other parts of the um, maybe company, other things that inspire you on a day-to-day basis that you observe, and the work that you're doing. And it, you know, particularly as, as team dynamics come into play and people are like, all right, here we go. You know, It's Matt and Carla and the rest of the team. We know whoever talks the loudest is going to get their idea you know, that's the one we're going to do, or, you know, like Matt's in charge. So we, you know, we can go through this eight hour exercise, but we're going to end up doing Matt's idea anyway. You know, it, it changes the, it changes the likelihood of that happening. And it gives people a way to start to have um, passion around some of their ideas because they understand how to connect what it is that they may love about comedy or music or art or mountain biking into the work that they do and they understand how to connect these dots. And in order to come up with those fresh kind of ideas that, you know, people kept telling me over and over that they struggled with creating. And I think one of the, one of the most fun examples that I like to talk about is Tim Washer and the work that he did when he worked at Cisco and his background is in stand-up comedy. And he was a writer for Amy Poehler on um, weekend update for Saturday night live. You know, he wrote for Conan O'Brien um, works with Bill Nye, the science guy, you know, the, the, some of the best of the best of the comedians, but he was able to observe what it is that works so well in a comedy situation for immediately building a very strong relationship and, and feeling of rapport and relate those characteristics. You know, it's not necessarily about, making people laugh out loud, but it's about um, getting them to put their emotional walls down. It's about talking about things that matter to them in a more human and, and emotional way. So he was able to take some of those characteristics that he distilled from what he, what he observed in comedy and relate those into the work that he was doing at Cisco and use that as, as the fertile ground to start generating ideas and when you do that, you come to the work from a whole different frame of mind that feels fresh and different and, and exciting. And especially if teams go through these observation exercises together or draw on a common experience, even something as simple as going to a coffee shop, it's a way to start to build more team camaraderie to be able to bring in the different experiences that team members have. And you know those, those diverse experiences, diverse points of view, in a way that serve in a common ground of bringing them to the the problem that you're trying to solve and, you know, how you relate these experiences into the work. And then 
you start to generate ideas from there. And one thing that I see over and over again is that, and, and this is typical even in traditional brainstorming situations, <clears throat> is that people, you know, come up with maybe 10 or 20 ideas and they're like, all right. And there's kind of a, a dip in energy. But when they have used inspiration from the outside world to start that idea generation process, their mind continues to connect the dots between what they've talked about experiencing in this objective, this problem that they've identified as needing to solve. And then their mind kicks in again, and this whole fresh cadre of, of ideas comes forth. And there's, there's research that shows that you don't truly get to unique and distinct ideas until you've gone through about the first 200. And so if most teams are starting at stopping at 20, and you don't really get to the good stuff until you get to 200. Right. You know, that's that that is why this need to understand how to bring in outside inspiration and put a process, you know, behind doing this and and making it something that people can relate to at all levels of the business is so important because when traditional innovators try and take those great ideas and run them through the rest of the organization, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy and roadblocks that come up. But there's there's just as many problems that need to be solved in order to you know execute to to promote the product or service to hire people in HR you know to work on it to bill for it you know all the other elements of a of a business that still have a lot of problem solving needs and and the need to look for op- opportunities to do things differently and these people need to be innovative thinkers just as much as the people who are in these traditional innovation roles. And when we look at things that have happened, like in the last year, companies have a hiccup in the financials and, you know, there's budget cuts that need to be made. And I've seen these innovation departments that were, you know, have these great real estate within an office and, you know, all of these um, very nice innovation titles and things like that are just scrapped because it was a a one-off from the main business the idea of innovation as a culture wasn't infused throughout the, t- the rest of the organization. So it's like cutting off your arm and saying, okay, now we need to produce more, particularly in times of chaos, like we've seen in, in the last year. And it's not about having to do more with less. When you truly make innovative thinking integral to how you function as a business, you're able to do much more with what you already have. So how can leaders accomplish that? How can they instill that innovative mindset or instill those innovative behaviors across all their teams, not just the innovation team that's located in a satellite office with you know, a coffee bar and nice wooden furniture and all, and all the things where everybody else is doing their own And free snacks, thing. right? Free snacks. Well, yes, of course. And a ping pong table. You know, and, and, and that's a big thing is that um, th- this ability to create a, I call it a culture of original thinkers, people who um, who rethink what they do in order to do it better. There's a couple of things that need to be in place if you're the you know executive in charge, you know, whether you're the chief marketing officer, you're the CEO of the entire organization, or you know, HR person who's looking at corporate culture, is that the one thing that I've seen that makes the most innovative companies actually this innovative at high levels consistently, you know, that they're able to sustain this over long periods of time. And and I'm talking decades, not just a few years, things like that, you know, a few quarters and, and financial returns 
is that how they approach business is first based on purpose, as in what's the bigger problem and problem we're trying to solve and contribution that, that we're making to the world around us. And that's why you see companies like Netflix and Google and Zappos um, and Apple are these iconic, innovative brands because their very foundational platform is based on purpose. And purpose is not your mission. It's not your vision. You know, it's not some of these other traditional brand platform things. A brand purpose is a very simple, succinct, I say a six to 10 word sentence that describes the change, the, the difference that you're making in the world. So, you know, like for Google, it's organizing the world's information. And that's something that everybody at every level in, in you know, every organization can understand because it's so simple and so specific and so to the point. Now, it, it does two things for the entire employee population. One, it gives them a North Star to continually point themselves to. So people at Google, I'll just use this as an example, when they ask themselves, okay, if, if this is a new project or a new initiative or a new fill in the blank, does this help us fulfill our purpose of organizing the world's information? And that should be a pretty clear cut yes or no. And if there's any question, you know, as, as you move along and, and, you know, like scope creep, there's also like bleed. So it, it points people in the same direction, but, you know, things get fuzzy in your day-to-day -day operation. It also gives you something against which you can ask others the question in your organization as requests come out so that you have the power to say no. So we see this a lot in sales and marketing. Sales will come to a marketing team and say, hey, I need this, 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 and it's critical. And we've got to do this campaign, event, launch, you know, whatever that may be. And if you have a, a brand purpose and this request doesn't directly support that purpose, that's a filter against which you can say no. And I, I think that's, that's one of the most um, empowering or powerful things for a brand is to get people to say no more often to the wrong things so they have the space and capacity to say yes to more of the right things. And I think that's that's incredibly powerful for a brand. Now, the second thing, it's, it's not enough just to have that brand purpose statement. The next thing is that you have to have the values in place that support the ability to deliver the behavior that delivers on that brand purpose. So if um, Google, I, and I don't off the top of my head, I can't tell you Google's values, but I guarantee that what they are, those behaviors ensure that as employees, when you exhibit those, that you're able to deliver on that brand purpose of organizing the world's information. And the values have to be taken incredibly seriously because this is what you need to be able to hire, fire, reward and reprimand against. You have to believe in that purpose so much that you that that's how you look at the behavior in um, when you hire people or do you believe in these values enough that you would let someone go over it? You know, do you reward them? Do you say that's not the behavior that we support here and you you know, you need to adjust how you approach things? Because in order to deliver on that innovation, you have to have the purpose and the behavior in place to actually deliver on it. And I tell you, I can't tell, um, 
I couldn't give you a percentage, but I'm sure you see it too, Matt. The number of people who one of their values is innovation. And it's also probably neck and neck with the number of times they say that's not how we do things here. Of course. You know, so so you can have it as as a value, but in, unless you have the the protocols in place to, you know, hire, fire, reward, and reprimand based on it, then you don't truly believe in innovation. And along with those protocols, I think it it plays into your decision making as well, all your decision making. And I love how you describe it as those companies that are really purpose-driven because that helps everybody from the C-suite all the way to the front line to have clarity on what on what they need to deliver, but also on how they need to deliver it. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I think there's um, one of the stories that Simon Sinek talks about when it comes to that purpose or as he phrases it, your why you know, there's a big difference between companies who approach their work from a purpose-driven standpoint and those that don't. And because of that, companies who perform in more innovative ways in a way that innovation is infused throughout their culture and those that aren't. So if you look at Apple and their, their drive for simplicity and how they talk about teaching people to think differently and looking at the world from a different perspective, it's very easy for them to then expand into things. You know, they started out in computers and they could do phones and tablets. And, you know, I look at how much I've got Apple creep in my life, you know, and because it's it's natural because it, all of these new product launches then support this brand purpose. But then, Dell had noticed that Apple was, you know, a computer company that moved into the the music industry and they tried to do the same and they failed miserably because they didn't talk about what they were doing from the point of view of a purpose. It was more like a, you know, a brand tagline, it was a brand platform and it was a mission and a vision. <clears throat> and so the ability to execute in more innovative ways isn't there because your customer base, your audience doesn't see you in that light. And so that's why a company like an Apple can move into so many different things that it has. And an Amazon and a Netflix is because when you speak to this bigger umbrella of what you're delivering to the world, then it gives you a lot of leeway for creative thinking that you don't have if you're not speaking about the work that you do from purpose. Does that make sense? It does. And... I'm thinking of it this way. It's that those brands that you talked about, those brands that are really successful, they also focus more on the overall customer experience and not just the not just the product offering. It's focusing on the full experience, not the offerings, not the tactics. Exactly. So if you look, um, like one of the things I love about Apple is how, like when I buy a laptop, the box. It, there's no extra space and it fits into the bag perfectly. Like there's no waste and there's no inefficiency. So their purpose is to empower creative exploration and self-expression. I still have a stack of boxes of all my Apple devices. I don't know why I still keep them. Right. Because in a way it's part of how you self-express yourself, right? right. It's nice. It's tidy. It just, it makes me feel good. I can't say that I've ever felt that about a Dell computer. 
<laughs> you yeah. know, or, 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 you know, a lot of other brands, computers or electronics or, or whatever. And so my heart is with this idea of creative exploration and self-expression. It's not about buying another laptop or the newest phone. And that's that beauty that having, and, um, always building your business toward the delivery of that brand purpose. That's why it's so powerful. And that's why you have such fanatic, fanatic Apple fans who will spend, you know, who will pay over a thousand dollars for a phone that they could get from another brand that's less expensive. Um, that's why they will sleep outside for 24 hours in line waiting for the new model to come out. I don't know that I've ever heard a story of, you know, people camping outside to buy a new Dell computer. Maybe they have. I, sh- it's, I sure never it's did just that. Not, yeah, it's just not in my newsfeed nearly as often, you know, I, I'll say that. Or, you know, or another brand. And these are incredibly important distinctions when it comes to innovation. Because when you give your entire employee population this charge of empowering creative exploration and self-expression. It's not about technology. It's not about customer retention. It's not about analytics. You know, it's not about a lot of these super tactical or specific things that brands generally talk about. It's something that every person and a lot of customers of Apple aspire to. It's a world that they want to create. And when you're able to elevate your brand to that level inside a person's mind, you know, at such a heightened emotional level that just frees people's brains. Like there's actually neuroscience that shows this frees their brains to consistently do that divergent thinking to think bigger, broader, you know, how how do I empower self-expression? How do I empower creative exploration? And then it converges into, okay, here's my inspiration. Now, how do I go through a process to come up with an idea that solves a specific problem that's new, great, and reliable that we can consistently execute, execute against? And when you have the entire, you know, group of employees understanding that and actually performing in that way, you know, you have, you have an army of people who are thinking more innovatively. You don't have just this 10% isolated group who really needs to have very broad shoulders if they're going to be the innovators who not only come up with the ideas for the products and services, but also, you know, in a way are expected to solve all these other problems within an organization. You know, they, they're human too, and they can only do so much. And when their innovative responsibilities only relate to what a company sells, then there's a whole lot of things that need to be addressed within an organization that that just can't because they can only do so much and everybody else is saying, it's not my job or I'm not smart enough. So we've taken innovation, we've democratized it, uh, if, if, if that's the right term, democratized it beyond just the innovation team and have placed it in the hands of those that are providing the customer experience. It sounds like you're saying the innovation should be in those other areas too, like even in accounting and finance and other support areas. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of my goals is by 2025 is to teach a million people how to become innovative thinkers. And I I love this example, Jeff Perkins, he's the chief marketing and and technology officer for Park Mobile. Yes. And he told, yeah, he told me the story about, um, so Park Mobile for one week, twice a year, they shut down and it's an innovation week. And while some of it focuses on new things that they would like to develop for product and service offerings, things like that, 
he said, it's really an opportunity for everybody to get involved in whatever way that they would like. So you have traditional product teams, but then you also have people who say, I'm in HR and I don't really understand how this goes. So I'm going to raise my hand to be a part of this innovation and work on something for, you know, for a week. So I get an inside view of it and I start to understand it. And you get these eclectic mixes of teams. And it's really interesting because even though some of these people may say, well, you know, I'm not a technical person. I'm not a programmer. I'm not a whatever else it is. They do have opinions. They do. They are people who park their car. You know, they're, they're people who are able to give insights from their perspective. But it also, these weeks also gave opportunities for people in different departments to just work on things that they wanted to work on that they felt was, was innovative, but they didn't necessarily have time during their, you know, regular day-to-day responsibilities. And there was a woman in the um, finance department who saw that there was a report that took her and her team 40 hours a month to produce. And you, you think about, you know, there's probably nothing more soul sucking than repetitive manual labor, you know, for something that you have to do every single month, you know, on a routine basis. So she took this, this week of innovation week and she taught herself a programming language. She actually wrote a program that took what used to take 40 manual hours to do. and now takes 20 minutes to run a report and it frees up her and other people on their team to do work that's more valuable. You know, she now has 39 minutes and 39 hours and 40 minutes a month just to think more creatively or, you know, rethink some of the processes that they're doing or work that they're doing and does it need to be done. And and that's incredibly valuable. Like if you can scale that by team across an organization, that's how you start to become a powerhouse. You really can. And it helps to have everyone understand that, that innovation is within their power. Everybody across the company has the power to innovate based on their ideas or based on what's in their control and influence. And sometimes, you know, sometimes innovation doesn't have to be providing this big, huge uh, new service to customers. It can be how do you automate something to save your team 40 hours a month? Sure, absolutely. And some people think, well, that's just you know, you should just know to do that. Well, not everybody does. And so to be able to, to teach people to start to think, rethink the work that they're doing and how can you make it easier, simpler, faster, you know, to, to rethink what you can do and and have a different impact. I mean, here's a woman now I can tell you everybody else on her team who doesn't have to do that monotonous, you know, repetitive reporting every single single month, you know, she's had a tremendous impact on them. And, you know, the end of the day, this is an extraordinary outcome for their team and for the morale. And just as an example of what you can do, if you start to look at the work that you do, look at the work that you do differently and understand a process for how to come up with an idea that solves a specific problem. You know, you and I were talking a little bit before about, um, innovation with the big eye and a, and a little eye. And I think it's yes. the big disruptive innovation with the big eye. That's, that's the sexy stuff that gets all the, you know, headlines and swagger and all of that. But if you look at all of the little eye incremental innovation, that's the stuff when you look at the, how that accumulates over time 
that makes all the difference in a company's ability to, you know, to pivot and adapt like we've seen in this last year versus really just being um, a drag and, and a heavy weight that doesn't let companies ad- adapt in, in environments like we've had this last year. If you leave that only to an innovation group that's focused on products and services, that's when you see companies that really, really struggle and in some cases go out of business. Yeah, it's sad. And then you have leadership thinking, well, we we tried innovation and that obviously didn't work. Now we have exactly. to now we have to sell this innovation building to somebody else. Um, exactly. But, and, yep. and and to clarify, when we talk about innovation with the little I, we mean putting the power of innovation into everybody's hands. I know you've alluded to this a little bit, but you've found where there's a specific process that you've found in your research that you know the prolific innovators have all followed that process, whether they did it intentionally or not. And this process can be provided, this process can be taught to everyone, especially those who want to, who wants to create these little eye innovations. Can you walk me through the process? Yeah, absolutely. And and I call these little eye innovators, um, I call them citizen innovators. So you know we had seen this term in um, news reporting with citizen journalists, you know, the, the people on the ground doing the work were the ones who were reporting. And I believe that's how we should start to look at innovation is, is to democratize it and make everybody a, a citizen innovator. And it could be something just as simple as how do we make this meeting different, fresh, this Zoom meeting, you know, different, fresh, unique, so people show up, so they'll turn on their cameras, so you'll, you know, whatever the outcome is that you want. But um, when you start to teach everybody this process, that's where you see everybody feels empowered and and capable and competent to start to innovate. And the the process is the ability to start to connect the dots between the world around you and and the world that you do. And you think that about one of the most iconic quotes about innovation is from Steve Jobs about the innovative people, they, you, you know, it's you know, essentially you're saying it's easy. You just have to connect the dots. And, you know, you can't, you don't always necessarily see what dots connect looking forward, but when you look back, you know, it's really obvious how to connect those dots. Right. Well, that that's what this process teaches people how to do is one, let's understand what, what is a dot. And then let's understand, you know, there's multiple, multiple ways to connect all these varying dots. And then how you take it through the process to get to the idea and execution. So it's, I call it the perpetual innovation process because the ability to consistently come back and use this process over and over and over again has been the hallmark of the people that I studied that are these prolific, sustainable innovators. And the first thing that they do is that they are hyper observant of the world around them. You know, they may be, may be the kind of person if you're walking down the street with them, they're they're noticing this in a window or that in the sky or, or something like this. And for people who aren't observant or don't have an appreciation for it, it can kind of be irritating. Like, come on, you're wasting our time. Let's 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 get to it, people. You know, especially yeah. the the type A people. But it's there. I think about my two children, like when we're when we're walking and they're like, okay, we're trying to get from point A to point B in 10 minutes, and you guys are stopping to look at every blade of grass or every cloud. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's why kids 
are massively prolific with their innovative with their innovation and creative you know thinking it's just that we kind of have to you know structure it a little bit more and and guide it as you grow into adulthood but it's that exact same thing and there was a study that was done by i think it was the university of, of north dakota that gave um a group of people a challenge and they said okay unexpectedly you have the day off um how do you how do you spend the day and the typical answers were, you know what, I'm going to catch up on email, I'll uh, take a nap, I'll go to the gym, I'll get groceries, I'll clean the house, you know, catch up on laundry, things like that. And then for the second group, they said, you know, unexpectedly, you have the day off, but you're seven years old. How do you spend the day? And it was things like, I'm going to ride my bike, I'm going to go eat all the ice cream I can, I'm going to go see my grandma, you know, very, very different and, and playful things. And that's why, to your point about going someplace with your kids and it taking forever, as we grow from that age into yours and my age, it's, you know, the educational system, um, the corporate environment, it teaches and rewards it out of us. And so it teaches us that being that observant, being that playful, being that open to the world around us isn't something that's valued because that's not what you get rewarded for. However, that's the very foundation of how you become a more innovative thinker is that you're highly observant to the world around you. Now you see all of these details, you know, you see the blade of grass, you see the, the bike on the side of the sidewalk, you see the um, crosswalk flashing, things like that. The next thing that these innovative thinkers do is they're able to find patterns in all of these observations. And it's, it's a genetic thing. Our brain very naturally finds these patterns, but to be able to identify them and that's the second step. And I call it the ability to distill. So what is the, everything that we're seeing and what are the patterns that we're starting to see? So if you think about walking down the street with your kid, it could be patterns around um, what things, you know, it could be ice cream. It could be a puddle of water. It could be, you know, their runny nose, you know, it could be, you know, fun things. It could be cold things. It could be green things. There's no rhyme or reason to what those patterns are. But now you start to do the third step, which is relate those or transplant those into the work that you do. And you start to say things like, what could um, things that are more green, you know, how could that start to relate the work that I do? Or how could being more playful start to relate to the work that I do? In the instance of Tim Washer and his situation in the um, comedy club and needing to make a product launch video for Cisco, he said, you know, how can I take what I've these patterns that I've seen in comedy about building instant rapport, getting people to relax. How can I relate that into the work that I do? And it's taking these three first steps and being patient enough to work through them before you get to the idea generation step. And that's the fourth step to generate ideas that makes all the difference in the world between something that's the same old thing that we always do or an idea that may be different, but actually it's just a copy and paste from something somebody else has already done to make it something that truly is different, fresh, and relevant to the work that you're doing. And then when you get to the final step, the fifth step to pitch your idea, if you go back and tell the story of your idea using the same steps that you came up with your idea, you've actually created a story journey. And when you're sharing something new that you want to try or test, you know, with this idea and you start out the story by relating it to something or a situation that people already know and can relate to, you've already lowered the perceived level of risk for that idea 
because they can see how it worked in this other situation and they understand the characteristics of why it worked. They see how you've related that into what you're trying to accomplish with your objective. And then that's a foundation for how you generate an idea. It, it takes away that feeling of risk. And it also, and this is really an important part of pitching an idea. It, it paints enough of a picture to get them excited but not so much that you try to answer every question. So then the person you're asking for permission to go to head ahead with, whether that's a, a client or a boss or, you know, a volunteer or whatever, they help you fill in those, those blank spots. And so the idea that was your idea now becomes our idea and it's easier to get support. And then again, lowers the perceived risk of moving forward with this idea. And that's, that's a really important thing when, you know, when we go back to people saying ideas are the easy part, it's executing them. That's the hard part that I think isn't given credit. That's an important part of that idea generation process. I think so. And I think that adds a number of steps that a lot of people don't realize. A lot of people, when they, when they, are either brainstorming or trying to come up with an idea, I think they jump right to that idea creation phase, skipping over those first few steps. And it can be difficult. It is. And that's, that's a lot of times when you get into the ending up doing the same old thing that you've always done, just maybe yeah. a little different, a little different lipstick on it, or you, you end up copy and pasting something that somebody else did. And it's, it turns out ridiculous. Yeah. And then on the other side, so you talked about that last step, pitching the idea. Now, what if I'm on the other side of that? What if I'm the leader and I'm trying to encourage my people to have more innovative thoughts, innovative ideas, and someone's pitching to me, what can I do as a leader to encourage uh, that process? Oh man, I love, love that you just asked me that question because I think it's sometimes... I, I forget to talk about it and I forget, I forget what an important part of this whole, whole process it is, but I'm sure, you know, either you've done it or, you know, one of your listeners has had it happen. You put together what you feel is a really good idea and it can address a specific objective and you go to a client or your boss and you share it. And then you walk away and somebody asks you how to go. And you're like, I don't exactly mm-hmm. know. You know, I, I, to be honest, I don't know. I don't know if they just told me to not do it or, you know, I don't know. And that's, it's a tremendous responsibility of the person. I call it the catcher. You know, you have the, the pitch, which is the action. You have the pitcher who's a person pitching the idea. And then you have the catcher. I never thought to even think of that being the term, but there you go. Yeah. They're the catcher. Yeah. They're the catcher and the catcher has such an incredible responsibility that I'll be honest, has, is, is not historically identified and discussed, but is so important. And unless the person pitching the idea walks away from it with a clear understanding of what you liked or didn't like and what to do differently, then you failed as a catcher. And essentially, if, if you're trying to get your team to step up and deliver more ideas and they're not, the number one place that I always start is with the feedback that they're giving people who are coming. Because many, I mean, if you go through this situation once or twice and you know maybe a third time and you don't have any idea what the feedback was that you got, you're not going to continue that. You're going to go, yeah, I'm just going to... 
keep doing that other thing I do every day and not just not worry about it. And that, and that's where innovation falters. Yeah, exactly. And so the two phrases that I, I say they need to focus on the first one is, excuse me, what I like. And this can be just as simple as I like that you have the courage to come to me with this idea. There is always something to encourage. And the reason that that matters is because if you're, if you're wanting to have people on your team exhibit a behavior, you need to reward that behavior when they do exhibit it. And there's many times where somebody will step forward or you know, even raise their hand in a meeting and say, you know, how about this? And they're, you know, kind of ridiculed or scorned or like, well, that was ridiculous. But the fact that they even had the courage to step forward and volunteer an idea, that right there at the very minimum is something that needs to be recognized, particularly if you have a culture right now that doesn't have a lot of people stepping up with ideas, that it, that's a culture of people just, you know, you tell me what to go do and then I'll just, I'll just go do it. I don't really want to think for myself. So that's, that's it. You know, what is it that you like about the idea? What, did, what did they think through? Well, what, you know, was it about, okay, you, you definitely see the need, right? You, you definitely are looking bigger picture. You're definitely thinking about our team's role and responsibility and how this can play out. You know, th- there's things that you can find that are good. And the other thing that they need to respond with is what I wish And there's a couple of things that are really important about this statement. One is that by saying what I wish versus what I didn't like, it feels much less personal. And Uh it also, it also puts the focus on the idea instead of the person. Wow. And so if, you know, historically, if, if somebody says, you know, I, okay, I, you know, what I liked was this and this and this, but what I didn't like people, I think naturally just take that as, what you didn't like about me as a person is, and somehow, you know, then our mind gets going and it's, I'm stupid. I shouldn't have done this. I should have just sat at my desk, you know, so-and-so smarter at this. So-and-so's better at this. I just, I shouldn't have stuck my neck out. And so the, you know, what I didn't like creates this conversation in the pictures had, you know, a story about all the things that I did wrong and they don't even hear the feedback then of, of the, of the catcher. And so when you say what I wish that really, it, it takes the perceived judgment of shortcomings of the person coming forth with the idea. It takes the focus off of them and and it puts it on the idea. You know, what I wish is that the idea talked more about how, how we do this and accomplish it in the next six months or how we can do it and still bring HR in to be a part of this or how we can do it across a broader team or, you know, a shorter team or, you know, whatever those, those things are. And it also gives people specific things to go back to their desk and put forth the effort to improve. And in doing that, the, what I like and what I wish scenario, that's how they, as leaders, show that innovation, innovative thinking and conversations happen, that you bring them forth, you talk about them, and then there's another iteration. And when you give people a what I wish list, then it opens up the conversation about, okay, like, how do we start to work on the what I wish? And what are the priorities for them? And, you know, what could we do now versus what needs to be done down the road? And it gives more concrete and and tangible things for 
the pitcher to go back and, and work on and iterate that idea. Maybe bring in somebody else from a different department who has another skill that can make that idea stronger. So it can help to, to do some of those things that are important for innovation, like cross-team collaboration, start to break down silos in an organization and, and things like that. There are two questions that are deceivingly simple, but incredibly powerful and, and important in the innovation process. They are powerful. And I think they're powerful when, when the catcher makes them as clear as possible so that that what I wish, that that wish list can't be vague. It can't be, well, you just need to make this stronger or you need to make it pop more if mm-hmm. you're talking about creative. It has to be really clear. Exactly. Exactly. You know, things like, I wish it was more creative. Okay. Well, what does creative mean to you? You know, back, back to some of those those common languages yeah. and common common definitions. So it can help to define some of those terms and, and language that's so important to put everybody pointing in the same direction and, and have the same understanding of the work that needs to be done. Well, there you go. There's no excuse now. There's the process that democratizes innovation. And then there's also the, the mindset, the behaviors, the questions that can help leaders to better encourage innovation as well. Yes, me absolutely. And I go th- in, in the book, the first half is really the practice of breaking, you know, deconstructing this innovation process and coming up with these new, great, reliable ideas on a consistent basis. And then the second half is, is the practice. Okay. Now that you know how to come up with the ideas, if it's you as an individual, what do you do? If you're part of a team, what do you do? If you're trying to create this as an entire organizational culture, what do you do? And and I'm big on giving people actions that they can take and go do, whether they're an individual, a, a team, or an executive wanting to create this kind of environment. And so there's there's plenty of those in there, regardless of where you fall in that in that range of things for you to to try and practice and make this a part of just how you approach the work that you do, regardless of what kind of work that you do. Oh yeah. And along with that, there's also the examples like Park Mobile uh, with the lady in finance and accounting, you know, like those types of stories that show you, you can do this too. Absolutely. And I, I use examples from one person companies all the way up to $25 billion enterprises. So it's not something that's only for, you know, a specific group. Um, I didn't include examples in there from nonprofits, but I have those too. And maybe you're part of a, a PTA or a volunteer, or, you know, you just want to figure out how to do something different for a, a family vacation or something like that. You know, it, it works in all of these different scenarios. Yeah. The process works no matter the scenario. Well, Carla, last question for you. If you were to create a five song soundtrack for Rethink Innovation, what songs would you include? You know, I think this this was such a fun question. And um, it's it's eclectic, just like the experiences I would like people to draw from in, in their observation exercises. So I'll say that to start with. Um, I think the first the first song on my playlist is The Beatles' Revolution. And that's a little bit about, you know, let's rethink and revolutionize how we look at innovation and how we think of ourselves in that role. So that's the first one. And it's just a really fun song that gets people's heart pumping, I think. It is. Um, 
The next one, and, and you and I talked about this one, Patty Smith's People Have the Power. And that goes that goes into this idea of citizen innovators and democratizing innovation. And and it's this is something everybody has the power and ability to do, as long as they choose to do it. You right. know, that the power really is in the people. It's not just the select elite few. Exactly. Exactly. The next one is one I've, I've taken a quote from, it seems like in forever, David Bowie and changes about turn and face the strange. And I think that that's something that a lot of times we're really hesitant to do and I'm okay with strange as long as it's familiar, you know, and there's, there's so much fun that comes out with the strange and your definition of strange can be really simple. Like somebody asked me yesterday, what's something that um, I've tried to learn or teach myself during quarantine. I'm trying to learn dance, shuffle dances from TikTok. And I tell you that is strange for, you know, strange for me because I'm not naturally coordinated, but you know, it's, it's fun and it's different. And I think whatever your definition of strange and how, you know, big or small, you know, sometimes strange could be getting a baked potato instead of fries, you know, it's a, it's a big variance, but I think that's really important to to face more strangeness in our life and be more observant about it. The fourth one is journeys. Don't stop believing. And you said, this is a popular one for people's playlists. And I think for me, one of the reasons I like this is because I want people to truly in their heart, believe that they are the ones who can change the world. They are the innovators. You know, it's not somebody else that you point to in your organization. It actually is you. And that's why I like that song. The fifth one is from the jungle book, the bare necessities about forgetting worries and strife. And that goes back to that idea of, you know, how you think as an adult versus how you think as a, as a seven-year-old and and that ability to put all the responsibilities and heavy thinking, big thinking aside, at least from time to time, even if it's for 15 minutes every other Saturday or something like that. And really plug back into that natural, creative, curious, observant, hyper-observant child that's in all of us. And um, look at the world from a little different perspective. Oh, there you go. And those are all, you know, essentially pretty fun, bouncy songs. And like, like the, you, you can really move to that and say, yeah, you know what? I, I, I'm into this. Exactly. 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 And it's when you bring in that element of fun and play, it's also kind of naturally kicks your brain into a little bit of this, this process just by how we're genetically wired. And so you don't have to be so intent and focused and thoughtful of it. You know, you get that element of play helps naturally usher the process along. It really does. Well, Carla, thank you so much. My goodness. I, I have learned so much from this conversation, but I know that there's a lot more to learn. So where can people go to learn more about you? You know, um, to learn more about me, my website is Carla with a C Johnson, carlajohnson.co. There's no M, just C-O. And then um, uh, I'm on LinkedIn and uh, Instagram. I'm a little more playful about some of the things I observe there. And I'm carlajohnson.co there. And then if you'd like to learn more about the book, you can go to carlajohnson.co slash rethink book. And there's a lot more detail and um, information there about the book. Excellent. Thank you so much. Well, Carla, it was great seeing you. Great talking to you. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. This has really been a fun conversation. I appreciate you having me on. 
I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Carla Johnson. So go ahead and pre-order her book, Rethink Innovation. It comes out on June 29th. Or you can buy and start reading the Kindle version today. Once you read it, you and your team can be nimble, passionate, innovative powerhouses that deliver extraordinary outcomes for the long haul. Wow, I'm excited for you. And if you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. It'll make it a lot simpler for you to get future episodes like the next one featuring Stephen Van Bellingham. Stephen is one of the top customer experience thought leaders in the world. And he's the best-selling author of multiple books, including his latest, The Offer You Can't Refuse, where he teaches how businesses of any size can deliver better experiences through customer-centric thinking. Hey, Forbes named The Offer You Can't Refuse one of the 10 must-read business books in 2020, so you know it's valuable. So go ahead and subscribe. You'll automatically get Stephen's episode as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Simple Brand Podcast. Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then, keep it simple.